Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two balls and two strikes to count. Musgrove is ready to kick in the pitch. And Thomas swings and it's in high in the air to deep left center field. Pro far back. This one way back. This ball is gone. Goodbye. A home run for Lane Thomas to deep left center field. And the Nationals break on top first. Here at the top of the second inning, it's Washington 1 and San Diego nothing. Here's the pitch to Bell, swung on, hit in the air to deep right center. This is way back, Thomas to the wall, and it is gone. Goodbye, a home run for Josh Bell. And this game is all even at 1-1 here with two out at the bottom of the fifth inning. The 2-0. Swing a line drive deep center field. Robles back this one over his head, and it is gone. Juan Soto's first home run against the Nationals. Puts the Padres in front 2-1 here in the seventh inning. That's his 23rd of the season. A screaming line drive. Hit the back wall just below the batter's eye over the center field wall. An absolute screamer off the bat of Juan Soto who circles the bases, giving San Diego its first lead of the night. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, August 21st, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Petco Park in San Diego. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The dream of the Nats authoring a four-game sweep at the Padres, sadly, is over, as is the dream of the Nats having a winning season. That dream now is over. The Nats late night on Saturday night, losing at the Padres 2-1 in Game 3 of a four-game series, falling to a Major League worst 41-81. and So there will be no winning record for the Nats this season. All three runs in the game came on solo home runs, including two by Juan Soto and Josh Bell. Mark, the baseball gods have some sense of humor, clinching a non-winning record for the Nats via a loss in a game in which the only two runs for the winning team came via solo homers from Juan Soto and Josh Bell. That is some cruel humor right there. Well, let's not give up completely here, Al, because a 500 record is still on the table, okay? So let's not, you know, completely 40-0, and 0, not saying it's impossible, you know, it could happen before it's all said and done. Yeah, look, to their credit, they had done a pretty nice job 
of holding Soto and Bell in check through five games against them. But you knew deep down that wasn't going to go on forever. It just wasn't going to happen like that. It's unfortunate that it happened in this manner, each of them hitting a home run, and that that would be truly the only offense in this game. I mean, the Potters had a ton of base runners, but they didn't drive anybody else in. So it's unfortunate that's the way it played out. But like I said, you knew it was going to happen eventually. And those two, both of them, those were crushed with authority, exit velocity, distance, you name it, they did it in each of those home runs. And uh, can't say anybody with the Nationals was surprised to see it. No. And what's funny is even with each guy homering, it was only two runs that you gave up. I mean, this was another game in which it really was the offense that was the culprit. The Nats pitching overall continues to do a nice job. I mean, if you go through recent Nats losses, especially the losses since the Nats traded away Soto and Bell, it really has to do with the offense. I mean, just working backwards here, here are your total run outputs for the Nats in recent losses. One, two, five, four, zero, five, two, three, one, five, two, like just low scoring affairs in terms of what the Nats offense has been producing. And we're not shocked by that. You know, this was an issue prior to trading Soto and Bell. It's even more pronounced now, but the Nats, they're pitching pretty well. I mean, you gave them two runs in this game on Saturday night and, you know, unfortunately ended up losing. Yeah. And and look, it could have given up a lot more than two. Josiah Gray was all over the place. And to his credit, he got through, got out of some jams and pitched his way out of it. But boy, it was a labor at times for him. And he was not pleased. I, he knew that the end result was solid, but he expected more of himself, especially expected him to go more than five innings. He was upset at that because he knew the bullpen was depleted. Some key guys were not available. He really wanted to give them more than five. But at the end of the day, you say, Gave up one run, and that was on a Josh Bell homer. So it is a results business, and, and it's okay, even if the process to get there wasn't perfect. The end result was that he gave his team a good chance to win a game. And if they just do a little bit more offensively, we're having a very different conversation, I think, about the outcome of this game. Yeah, it's funny with Gray. You know, sometimes you say, well, a pitcher pitched better than his final line indicated. I think this was the opposite. He pitched worse than his final line indicated. But like you said, Give him credit because he ended up having a final line, you know, that was passable, was acceptable. One run in five innings for Josiah Gray on Saturday night. He only gave up four hits, the homer by Josh Bell and three singles. He had three strikeouts, but what really and clearly hurt him was not throwing strikes. He issued five walks. He, over his five innings, threw 102 pitches, 55 strikes versus 47 balls. I mean, nearly one-to-one the strike-to-ball ratio. The homer by Bell, very interestingly, came precisely on pitch number 100 by Josiah Gray in this game. It was a two-out solo homer by Josh Bell to right center field to tie the game at one. Uh, You mentioned the distances. 415 feet was the uh, projected distance per stat cast. And if any human being on the planet has ever needed to hit a home run, I would argue that Josh Bell uh, may be at the top of that list. Bell came into this game having been woeful for the Padres, an OPS plus of 22 over 68 plate appearances. OPS plus 100 is average, below 100 is below average. 22 is like beyond atrocious. He really was struggling. But, you know, we know how it is with Bell. When he gets a hold of one, he can drive it like, you know, a thousand miles away. And that was a pitch uh, that he got a hold of for sure. 
And he was 0 for 20 against the Nationals at that point. There were some walks, so not like he hadn't reached base at all, but 0 for 20. The crowd has been on him all weekend. They are not satisfied the way things are going here right now, but they let out a huge roar when he connected on that one. That was one of those no-doubters off the bat, like no question about it. And you could see Bell, it was cathartic for him. He needed that getting around the bases. I have a feeling based on what we've seen from him in the past, this is just the beginning now, and he's going to go off and he's going to finish the season strong for them. And they need it. He needs it. Let's remember, he's in a pennant race for the first time in his career. Didn't happen in Pittsburgh, thought it was going to happen in DC and didn't, now finally has an opportunity. And you can imagine he's feeling some pressure to uh, to deliver now in this spot with how high profile the acquisition was. So maybe this one allows him to relax a little bit, get going. And like we've seen, when he gets hot, he gets hot for a long period of time. The remarkable thing is that it really took until now this year for him to go through any kind of slump. That's what made this season so impressive from him that aside from maybe at seven to 10 day stretch in May, I think it was, he had been so consistently good all year, which has not been the pattern in his career. So you hope for his sake that that was the end of that slump and that he's now going to take off the rest of the way. The reaction of Josiah Gray once Bell's bat hit the ball. I mean, Gray knew the second that Bell made contact that that ball was out. So, you know, we know that Josiah Gray gives up homers. He now has given up a major league worst 32 home runs this season. But the issue on Saturday night was the walk and just was not throwing strikes. Now, Gray really hasn't had that much of a walk problem this season, but obviously his control was an issue in this game. What was happening? I mean, was that just the mechanics? Was it just an off night? What went into Josiah Gray having such a hard time throwing strikes? He felt like it was mechanics. He felt like his legs, his lower half was not in sync with his upper half, essentially, is the way he described it. And what was interesting was this wasn't, we've talked a lot about his fastball command being such an issue in the past, and then he'd ditch that pitch and just go with curveballs and sliders. It really was everything tonight that he was struggling with. And so that's why he felt like it was more mechanical than anything. And it took him a while to figure it out if he ever did. But again, he buckled down in some big spots. I mean, there were some big outs for him in this game. He struck out Bell in the first inning with the bases loaded. He gets Kim to fly out with the bases loaded in the third. And then he gets Soto to fly out and then strikes out Manny Machado in the fourth with a runner on third, another runner on first. So, I mean, there were some high stress pitches for him in this game. And Again, if you just want to look at the results, there are some positives to take out of this. And maybe in a way, it's good to see that he can, uh, on a night when he doesn't have his best stuff clearly, still find a way to gut his way through it. There's something to be said for that. That's as much of a part of the learning process for a young pitcher as dominating or you know pitching into the seventh inning and anything like that. If you can have a night where you don't have it and you still emerge with only one run allowed, then you've done something right. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Yeah. And this does end up being a third consecutive solid, if not good start for Gray. Uh, 4-2 loss at the Cubs on August 10th. Two runs, six in a third innings, five strikeouts, no walks. The 5-4 win over the Cubs at Nationals Park this past Monday night. The uh, Onions game for Gray, three runs in six innings, 10 strikeouts, two walks. Davey Martinez leaves Gray in the game. He responds by recording his 10th strikeout of the game. And, you know, now I I think, you know, you could argue a gutsy effort in this game at the Padres on Saturday night. So Gray is able to at least give the Nats uh, one run in five innings. And then came the Nats bullpen. And, you know, look, you did give up the home run to Juan Soto. So you can't say it was like a great game for the Nats bullpen. 
But still, I mean, three Nats relievers allow one run in three innings. I mean, you know, you're not going to be perfect every night with your bullpen. Game in, game out. Certainly in this series, you're seeing more good than bad with the pen. Jake McGee, perfect bottom of the sixth. Steve Ciszek, bottom of the seventh, gave up a leadoff homer to, yes, Juan Soto, to, yes, dead center for a 2-1 Padres lead, 429 feet for StatCast. And then Tyler Clippard, who you may have forgotten is on the ball club, he pitched in the bottom of the eighth, a scoreless bottom of the eighth, despite issuing a hit-by-pitch and a walk. Uh, He was pitching at a game for the first time in six days. He needed 23 pitches to complete that scoreless bottom of the eighth. It's not pretty right now when Tyler Clippard pitches, but in terms of relief pitcher availability, what was happening here? Because we saw McGee, Ciszek, and Clippard, but we obviously did not see a number of others for the Nets. Yeah. So look, the um, domino effect of the previous two nights, which were great, compelling games decided late in which Davey has to use up all his big name relievers. Here was the domino effect of that. Kyle Finnegan, not available. Carl Edwards Jr., not available. Davey said he was trying to stay away from Erasmo Ramirez as well. So now you know you're going to have to go to some different arms in this one. The most curious thing, and, and we got an explanation for it afterwards, and this makes sense why this happened. You know, we spent all year saying, oh, they don't have any lefties in their bullpen. They finally get Jake McGee. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why isn't he the guy facing Juan Soto in a tie game in the seventh after he had a pretty quick and clean sixth inning? I think it was 11 pitches that he threw. Well, here was the problem. He had warmed up multiple times earlier. So when Josiah Gray was really laboring and they're worried, hey, we may have to pull him from this game, McGee was the one who was up and warming up. And so by the time it got to going into the sixth, The feeling was, we can't sit him down again. He's already hot in the bullpen. We got to bring him in now. If we sit him down again, he's not going to pitch tonight at all. We're not going to warm up for a third time. So after all that, he pitches the sixth and the feeling was, they're not going to do that to him, make him come back and start another inning. Could he have done it? Maybe. Maybe the results would have been better. Who knows? Even if it was just to face the one batter. But Davey was pretty adamant about not wanting to do that to him um, especially he's still you know, new here. He's 37 years old. And they're not going to take any chances and risk blowing him out. But it was unfortunate. It felt like, oh, they finally have a lefty with some experience and some track record they can bring in to face maybe the toughest lefty hitter in baseball. And they wind up not using him there because they already burned him up the previous inning. Yeah. That's one of those things about bullpen management that we probably don't focus on enough, which is it's not just about like how often you use a guy in a game. You have to monitor warming the guy up and how often are you warming him up? And uh, there's a phrase that we're going to keep this a PG show, so I won't use, but it gets used in baseball all the time. I think you know what I'm thinking of like, if you have a guy warmed up and he doesn't come into the game, it's almost like a waste. So it's like you want to use that guy and you don't want to warm somebody else up. And so I think that is one of the trickier things about managing because, you know, you have to almost be like a fortune teller and try to project, okay, where am I with the pitcher currently in the game? Who can I warm up? When do I want to tell him to start warming up? Like, there is a real strategy behind that. Yeah, there is. I think I agree. This is something that most people watching the game don't ever truly appreciate. And you say, oh, well, why didn't they just use this guy in this spot? Well, because you can't just wait till that situation arises to pick a reliever. You have to foresee it coming, warm them up at the proper time. And then like you said, sometimes you warm someone up because the starter is laboring or looks like an inning might continue and you got to have him ready in case the right batter comes up. 
well, oh, hey, the guy gets out of the inning. Now what do you do? Do you sit him down? Do you keep him hot? There's only so much you can do. And maybe in any individual game, it's not the end of the world to push that envelope a little bit. But over the long run, that stuff does have a dramatic effect on them and you're trying to keep everybody healthy. It really is a challenge. It requires a lot of communication between the manager, pitching coach, bullpen coach, who's tracking all this of who's warmed up, how many throws they've made and all that. So it's unfortunate that it happens sometimes like that. But yeah, keep in mind, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, Juan Soto was up. They have a lefty in their bullpen. Of course he should face him. Well, yeah, in a perfect world, you would do that. But you can't just decide in that moment. You have to have mapped it out beforehand and hope everything goes right. Very rarely does it actually go right. Things are going to happen earlier on that screw up the plan. And you see the domino effect too of when you have a starting pitcher who is laboring and who is teetering, you know, you're dancing this dance of, okay, do I pull him now? Do I warm this guy up now? Okay, let me have this guy warming up, but should I keep Josiah in the game? So there's that. You know, if Josiah is cruising, you're not warming up Jake McGee, but because Josiah was issuing five walks and had a hard time finding the plate, you had to do something like that. But still, the Nats only gave up the two runs on Saturday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right-handed hitter against the right-handed pitcher. And here it comes. Swing and a knuckling line drive right side. They're going to let it bounce. They throw to second one. Now they've got the runner hung up between second and third. And chasing Thomas. He's tagged out and the game is over. And the Padres win their first game of the series 2-1. to one. The Nats only scored one run on Saturday night. The Nats finished with seven hits, a homer, and six singles. No walks. Struck out eight times. Went 0 for 7 with runners in scoring position. It was great to see Cesar Hernandez in that number two spot, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Boy, that really makes a lot of sense at this point in the year. But it was good to see Lane Thomas hit a solo home run and have a single. I saw you note this, and you know, I guess this kind of caught me by surprise. I'm guessing it probably surprises other people. Lane Thomas has 12 home runs this season. And look, that's not some grand total, but on this team, 12 homers is like, you know, 45 on like, you know, a great team. He has not had a great season. We know that. But that was a good homer that he had on Saturday night. He has had some extra base hits lately, so maybe possibly 
he's getting going here. You know, it's still kind of hard to put a finger on what exactly the Nats have in Lane Thomas, but we know when he's going well, he can go quite well. Uh, he and that Nats one run second had a one out solo shot to left center for a one nothing Nats lead, 404 feet per stat cast, top of the ninth had a one-out single. So, you know, I don't think you can count on anything here with Lane Thomas uh, for now, but it was nice to see him hit the homer. And yeah, he's got 12 homers this season. Yeah, and the only guys who've hit more homers for the Nationals this year are named Juan Soto and Josh Bell. And I think Bell's at 14 and Thomas is at 12. So when it's all said and done, Thomas could actually leapfrog him. I don't know if he's going to get to Soto's 21 before it's all said and done. So it's a sign of the state of a lot of whole other, whole lot of other things, including, you know, Nelson Cruz's struggles, Cesar Hernandez's struggles, but. He does have the ability to do that. It's funny. I was talking to him the other day about all the different spots in the lineup that he's hidden, sometimes leading off, sometimes at the bottom. He actually hit cleanup a few times here recently. I asked him, like, where do you feel like you fit in best? He knows he had success leading off last year, but he actually feels like he enjoys hitting and thinks he's productive in the middle of the order, like five or six. And maybe you see some signs of that, that he does have some power potential. Now, is that ultimately where I think he's best suited? Probably not. I don't think he's that good of a hitter. But if he continues to hit for some power like that, and on this team and in this lineup, maybe that makes some sense. Now, the irony there, he wasn't even supposed to be in the lineup for this game. That would have been Luke Voigt, actually. He was scratched again with back spasms. And so the domino effect, Joey Manessis moved to first base, and that put Thomas into the lineup in right field. They were really playing down in this game. And again, not that Luke Voigt is the end-all be-all, but when you've already lost Soto and Bell, they've also now lost Yadiel Hernandez, who's on the IL. Luke Voigt's a really important part of the lineup, and he was unavailable for the second straight day. It's an any surprise they were held to one run. Not really. So with Voigt, for a second straight day, he was in the original lineup and then was scratched. So what happened with that? Because the same thing happened on Friday. Yeah, Friday, there was no reason to know anything was wrong. And then as we got closer to game time, he told them that his back spasms were happening, I think probably during BP. So they scratched him. Now, it felt like things were getting better. He went out there early on to take some swings in the cage and see how it felt. And he said he felt it again. And so they had put out a lineup. This is fairly early in the afternoon. And then moments before we were supposed to go in to talk Davey Martinez for the pregame session, Void and bench coach Tim Boger actually walked in there and we realized, oh, they're probably about to have a change of that lineup. And sure enough, that's what it was. So I think they're just being careful with this. They tried to say that they thought he'd be available to pinch hit, but very notable here, go all the way to the bottom of the ninth, two runners on, Victor Robles is coming up and they pinch hit for him and they don't use Luke Voigt, they use Michael Franco, who has been buried on the bench here lately. So that suggested and was confirmed afterwards, Voigt was not available. So that makes me wonder if he's even able to play on Sunday. Yeah, I always love it when managers before a game say, he's not starting, but he's available to pinch hit. Like, how often is that actually true? It feels like it's more often not true than it actually is true. But you tell me, because you've covered these teams for years. Every once in a while, it does happen, but not nearly with a lot of regularity. And I'm guessing that in game one of the 1988 World Series, Tommy Lasorda said that uh, Kirk Gibson was available to pinch hit. And sure enough, he was, much to everyone's surprise. Yeah, I guess maybe that's like one of the few instances that actually played out. Yeah, I just you hear that all the time. Well, he's available to pinch hit, but like the guy never ends up pinch hitting, you know, because you don't want to play him. He's hurt. 
they want the opposing manager to at least think there's the possibility of it. And deep down, they know it's probably not going to happen. So you mentioned Yadiel Hernandez. Uh, He is now on the injured list. The Nats putting him on that on Saturday as he's dealing with a left calf strain. And so Josh Palacios uh, has been brought back up. Do we have any sense on how long Yadiel might be out? It's the 10-day IL. Uh, It's retroactive to August 19th. So he could be back fairly soon. You would think so, but calf injuries are tricky things. I was reminded today, I had forgotten all about this one. Jordy Mercer last summer suffered a calf injury. That was at that time when everybody was getting hurt. Schwarber, Trey Turner, the whole roster was falling apart. And Mercer missed considerable time because of it. There was, of course, the Alex Avila double calf injuries as well. A little different situation. So Yadiel Hernandez, older guy, not somebody who you think of in general as being like a great physical specimen. So I'd be at least a little bit worried this could linger. And, you know, you're six weeks away from the season being over. So if it drags on for a while and then he needs to go get at bat somewhere, he could run out of time. I'm not saying I know that for sure. Maybe he is back in 10 days, but that could actually be a fairly significant loss because here's another guy who just by default generally hits in the middle of their lineup. So that's not great. Now, you said they called up Josh Palacios. On paper, they called up Josh Palacios. Josh Palacios never actually made it to the ballpark in time, though. He's with AAA Rochester. They were playing in Worcester, Mass. That is the correct pronunciation of it for those of you who may have forgotten. As far as I know, they were expecting him to make it around game time. And throughout the game, Davey's looking at the dugout and there's nobody there. Palacios is not there. Comes to the ninth inning. Nope, he's not around. And in the clubhouse afterwards, there was a locker with his name and number on it. And there was no equipment in there. So he did not make it. I don't know if it was a flight delay some kind of bad weather. I don't know what happened, but he did not make it. That's unfortunate when you literally make a roster move and announce it and the guy doesn't even make it before the game is over. That's the perils of cross-country travel, I guess. Yes. Shades of when the Nats had their AAA affiliate in Fresno, California and all the wonderful travel tales that that ended up generating. I wanted to make mention of this. So Joey Manessis, uh, he ended up being the Nats starting first baseman and number three batter on Saturday night. So the home runs have dried up, but the hits haven't. He does continue to generate hits. He on Saturday night went two for four with two singles. He in the top of the first had a two-out single up the middle. He in the top of the eighth had a one-out first pitch opposite field single to right center field. You know, we'll see this, right? Some no-name comes up or some no-name comes out of nowhere and catches fire and then gets humbled very quickly. One thing that's standing out with Manessis is he does legitimately seem to be a good hitter. Like a good number of his recent hits have been to the opposite field. Like he's not just pulling a bunch of balls and kind of lucking into hits, things like that. Like he actually seems to be a good batter. You know, like, so again, like, what does this mean long term? Who knows? But I think it's worth highlighting that, that at the very least, maybe you do have a Yadiel Hernandez type here, a guy who can hit. And while the home run run was nice, he's not just about that. Like, the guy can actually make contact. I and mean, he's done that lately. He did it on Friday night. You know, one run fifth had a two out opposite field single to right field. He's using all fields here. Yeah. And I think what's probably a sign of is that book is out on him. Everybody realized, look out, this guy can pull a ball 400 feet down the line, stay away from him, breaking balls, change up, stay on the outer half of the plate. Well, he's showing that he can still take those pitches and at least go the other way with it and record a, a single. So he he is a good hitter. I mean, kind of like Yadiel, the minor league numbers suggest that he knows how to hit. As with everybody, 
you come up to the big leagues, you catch everyone by surprise, and then they start to get a scouting report on you. And now it's up to you to show you can adjust to that. So far, I think some pretty good signs of that, that bodes well, potentially, for the rest of the way. Now, still very early in this process. I'm not going to make any great pronouncements about Joey Manessas being the future of the Nationals. But right now, given what they have to work with, it's nice to see that. And he's proving that it may not have just been a flash in the pan, that there may actually be some skill there that can be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking about like long term, what could he be? Maybe he can be like a Yadiel Hernandez, an older guy just coming up, you know, not a great offensive force, but someone who can hit, you know, can have like a 750, 800 OPS for you as a part time player, that kind of a thing. Well, you mentioned Worcester, Mass, and uh, it was on Saturday that the Nats AAA affiliate, the Rochester Red Wings, had a 5-1, seven-inning rain-shortened victory at the Worcester Red Sox, and the starting pitcher for the Red Wings in that game was the Nats pitching prospect Cade Cavalli, and he was good again. One run in five innings, eight strikeouts. Uh, He gave up just two hits, a double and a single. He did have some control issues, uh, three walks, a hit by pitch and a wild pitch. And he did throw a lot of pitches, 109 pitches over his five innings, 69 strikes versus 40 balls. So yeah, there were some nits to pick. But Kate Cavalli now over his last seven starts, 36 and two thirds innings, ERA of 147, 43 strikeouts, versus 12 walks. So here we are again playing the game of will they or won't they in terms of calling Cade Cavalli up. I want to ask you this though. So we're taping this installment of the podcast in the early morning hours of August 21st. You know, the season is winding down. If the Nats don't call Cade Cavalli up within the next, say, week to 10 days, are we starting to get to a point at which you say, what is the point of calling him up this season? And why not just wait until next season and start the service time clock, you know, as late as possible? Like, are we not starting to run out of time here for a meaningful major league regular season for Cade Cavalli if he's not called up soon? I don't think so, because I think even if it's only a handful of starts in September, there's still value in that. And I don't think it would really do anything to his service clock as long as you have fewer than 45 days in the big leagues, it does not count as a, his rookie status would still be the same for next year. Now, the only thing would be if they don't bring him up this year and then they wait to call him up next year. That's what I'm saying. If they continue to wait, you could, in theory, buy another year of control after that. That would be very suspicious if it came to that point. I don't sense that that's in the plan at all for them. I do think we are on the verge of it here. Davey was asked about it and sort of cryptically started to say something about him making one more start for Rochester and then we'll have a sit down and make some decisions. We're going to wait and see what transpires here in the next. I know he threw a bunch of pitches today. Um, He struck out a lot of guys, but he threw 109 pitches, I think it was, or something like that. So, um, yeah, we'll wait and see. We'll see. We'll continue to monitor him. Like I said, I know his stuff is is getting better. A lot of concerns is about that. You know, his pitch count gets up there. So, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I think he's got one more start maybe here in the next, you know, five days, and then we'll see how that goes, and then we'll go from there. But yeah, that's that's a decision that Riz and those guys are going to make here uh, if, if they've deemed that he's ready. I mean, I've been keeping an eye on him and. You know, like I said, he's had some consistencies as of late, which is kind of nice. His stuff is actually really playing well, but we got to get that pitch count down. He's got to be more efficient. 
which led me to believe they may have already decided that's going to be the case. But he sort of caught himself before he finished that thought and then left it a little bit open-ended. I've been saying all along, you just look at the schedule and they have a homestand coming up against Cincinnati and Oakland, which would be a prime opportunity to call up a prospect and try to put him in a good position to succeed. Now, if he makes one more start before then, that probably knocks him out for the Cincinnati series, but maybe he debuts against Oakland. I don't know. We're trying to read the tea leaves here. It's been really difficult to actually nail this thing down because we've all thought that he would have been up by now. But I will say this, what you talked about, the high pitch count, it is something they're definitely aware of and watching and a little bit concerned about that they want to see a little more efficiency and consistency with him because they know it's only going to get harder at the big league level where hitters are more patient. They're not going to chase pitches that are just off the plate as much as maybe he's used to in the minor leagues. So he's not a finished product yet. But you could also say, well, they'd let Josiah Gray throw 102 pitches in five innings against the San Diego Padres. Why not let Cade Cavalli try to do the same thing? So I do think it's happening. I don't believe they're going to wait until next year to do it, but they are being very careful as we've seen all along and watching the innings and everything else that goes along with it. So that's the other thing. We don't know what that innings limit is. What if we're closer to that than we realize? Maybe that explains why he hasn't been called up and maybe that would lead to them not calling him up this year. I guess you never say never, but it seems to me, I mean, all the indications we've gotten from them are that they do that they have expected all along for him to pitch in the big leagues at least at some point in September, even if it's only a little taste of it. And if they don't, they're going to have to do a lot of explaining of why they chose not to. And it's frankly not a good look for them if they don't. I mean, if this guy is supposed to be the real deal, then you should be calling him up to show everyone that he is the real deal. And if you don't come up, it's almost like you're admitting that you did something wrong or that he wasn't nearly as good as you thought. I mean, you've got a body of work now over about 13 starts, I think, where he's been, you know, ERA in the low twos. So yeah, he's not perfect. He's not, this isn't Strasburg minor league domination. It is a high walk count, a high pitch count and all that, but the results are the results. And it's hard to look at that and say that he hasn't proven just about everything there is to prove before getting the call up. Yeah. It has been curious because like we've said, you would have thought by now he would have been up. You would have thought he would have been up months ago. And so you say to yourself, okay, well, why isn't he up? And as he continues to pitch well, as he has been pitching well for multiple months now, you know, the mind starts to wander of like, well, what is going on here? So we'll see. I mean, if they call him up in the next week, then all right, it's on. But if they don't, then I think you really have to say like, there may be something more happening here. We know this with the Nets. They're not exactly super upfront about things, okay? One of their top position prospects, Brady House, nobody knows what's going on with him right now. I mean, he might be out for the year. You don't hear anything about it. There are no updates, nothing. He's got this back issue, like nobody says anything about it. So I don't know. I don't I don't think you can put anything past them with what's happening with Cade Cavalli. Like, who knows what might be going on in terms of the inner organizational thinkings with Cavalli? You're not wrong for throwing that all out there. I will just say... He threw 109 pitches on Saturday and did very well after going seven innings the previous start. So as far as we can tell, he's healthy. I don't think that's the question. It's just a matter of when they think that he is truly ready for this and the ramifications of all that. Yeah. Well, it'll be exciting to see. And uh, we certainly hope to see Kate Cavalli soon and see him dominating at the major league level. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast to Nats chat podcast 
at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shover's Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram as well, at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. And keep sending us photos of uh, you wearing your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts at Nationals Park, although we know the Nats aren't there right now, but uh, we appreciate very much getting those photos. And we get plenty of people wearing Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts at uh, ballparks other than Nationals Park, which in a lot of ways is even better, right? Wearing the gear on the road, uh, very much appreciated. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Uh, speaking of the radio, Nats Chat is on the radio Sunday mornings at 9 on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond and on Sports Radio 96.5 FM at 8.50 AM in the Hampton Roads area. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And he gets Valdez. Cavalli roars approval. And he wins a titanic battle to close out his final pitch of the day. 109 pitches, and that may have been the best.